Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Album of the Day show. I'm your host, Ian Hooper, and this is a show that's about the five classic albums that I listened to this week that are randomly pulled from a book called 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die by Robert Dimery. And the five that we listened to this week were interesting ones. Um, I heard some classic punk, some stadium rock, some alternative grunge, and two very different styles of hip-hop. So when I talk about these records, I'll be going over my notes from when I listened, my favorite and my least favorite tracks, some trivia, critical reception, and finally a rating out of 10. And if you like what you're about to hear, consider subscribing, liking, rating, sharing, whatever. It helps me out, and it gives me some much-needed internet validation from strangers. Uh, You can contact the show, find my social media, get your own list of albums, and even find some other fun stuff using the links in the description. So I have a few rules as I go over these albums. Um, I can't skip any of the records that are recommended to me. I can't skip any of the songs on those records. And I have to listen to the album in its entirety at least once, top to bottom. So with all that being said, let's jump right into it. Because on Monday, I listened to The Clash's The Clash from 1977. So it's their debut record. It's like early, early punk. It's a lot of fun stuff. I love punk music. And I think I made that somewhat clear in the last episode, but this is really the stuff that got me into playing and exploring music when I was a kid, because I started playing guitar when I was 13. My brother had already been playing drums for years up to that point. He's been drumming for, let's see, he's, he's 26 this year. I think he's been drumming for going on almost 20 years. It's been a long time that he's been playing. Um, he was in the pop punk like Green Day and Sum 41 and Blink-182. So naturally, I kind of started playing that with him once I started getting into guitar. And both of our tastes kind of expanded into all of that really good, actually good punk stuff, like the early stuff, like the Misfits and the Ramones especially. So I know The Clash a bit, but mostly I know their album that came after this, London Calling, because that one is by most accounts like the Clash album. So I was kind of surprised but also a little stoked to see something different from that record on this to check out. So I'll tell you, it really did not disappoint me in the slightest. It's a really good record. Let's jump into my notes. Um, The Clash is 14 songs and 35 minutes long. The record opens up with the track Janie Jones, which is just classic early punk stuff. I love the group vocals on the chorus. I love the bass line that just sort of walks around on the verse. It's really like the strongest part of the track. It's super well produced. And it's not even just the remaster versions on Spotify, because, of course, you know, this being an old and and kind of well-regarded album, it probably has a remaster. And that's what version is on Spotify. But even if you go to YouTube and you listen to the original recordings from 1977, they sound just as good. Like they really got it absolutely right at the source. So obviously the remaster has a little bit more polish. But no matter which version you listen to, it's great, honestly. And that's something that can't really be said about every remaster. Um, Following Janie Jones is the song Remote Control, which just, it shows how catchy all of the Clash's songs are. There's some great playing, especially on the bass. There's some strong vocal performances. I dig that tiny little bridge part that shows up before the guitar solo. These songs are just super well-crafted, especially even by early punk standards. Like, it's not just... It's not a knock on anybody, but they're not doing just like distorted power chords and, you know, that 
kick snare kick snare kick snare kick snare kind of drum beat it's it's done very interestingly all the playing is top notch and i really dig it you can tell that even at this stage in their careers being their first album everybody in the clash are all great musicians and writers and this track really shows that so next up is i'm so bored with the usa which has one of the best openings on the whole record i mean the verse guitar and the vocals are great that chorus is catchy as all hell especially with that harmony from the rest of the group it does so much with honestly very little there's a little fake out there close to the end where you think the song is over but then it comes back in with another chorus and a new guitar part that you haven't heard yet that was super effortless super cool a really well done track white riot is next which i think was written about the capital protests <laughs> i'm just kidding obviously um but punk honestly has such a great way of talking about the present issues that the artists experience and Sadly enough, society has a great way of never changing, so the songs are true nearly 50 years later. Um, but in all seriousness, it's it's a classic punk track with some solid guitar playing. It's probably one of those songs that you will recognize. Um, I know I rec- recognized it when I heard it from something. I, I don't even I can't even place where I've heard it, but I've heard it before. There's a great guitar solo at the end. I again love how talented these guys are as musicians. Um, you always hear stories about punk bands that don't like even know how to play their instruments when they're when they start i think the sex pistols in particular um sid vicious the bassist he had never played bass before when they started in the band um although the sex pistols are garbage and weren't real punks um but you can tell the clash are totally different from a lot of their contemporaries at the time like they really know their way around their instruments even this early into the game um after white riot is hate and war and I find it really interesting at this point how varied the guitar parts are. There's, you know, most of the stuff in this punk era, like I said, is just barely intelligible, heavily distorted power chords. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I do appreciate the variety that The Clash have on this. Like, it's as if when you tell someone who's never heard of The Clash before that The Clash are a punk band, they get a totally different idea of what the music is in their heads. And... I think they're just so much more artistic than you would ever expect. And this song is a very strong effort of that. It shows just how varied and influenced they are by multiple styles rather than just trying to emulate what everybody else is doing at the time. I think that makes them just stand out so much. It gave me a lot of respect for The Clash. Um, Not that I didn't respect them before, but... London's Burning has a great chord progression. I love the progression of London's Burning. It's got some great lead guitars in there, and I love how nasty um, the frontman Joe Strummer sings this one. Like, you can hear the disgust in his voice as he talks about all the, the fucked up things that are going on in London at the time. I love that bit. After that is Deny, and it's got even more varied instrumentation. I love the pre-chorus. It's got the super reverby kind of spaced out guitar. The end of the track is where everyone kind of sings the chorus while Joe Strummer is singing different lyrics. And that's a really nice touch. You know, it's kind of one of those things that's a little bit cliched, but I really like that they compose the song this way. It, it gives a lot to the track. And I also really dig the guitar tone on the solo over the top of that bit. There's a lot going on there, but everything is kind of, it's it's very intelligible you can tell what's going on and i like it for that a lot um career opportunities has a really cool chorus i dig the drum beat the song cheat follows that and it's got some of the best drum playing on the whole album i love the opening line i get violent when i'm fucked up that's such a punk anthem 
It's got some great guitar tones. It does a really cool flanger effect a few times that I really dig. It's very well produced. Um, there's another solid guitar solo there at the end, and the ending is solid there. Um, it's definitely favorite. That that flanging effect just it's the kind of thing that you don't really hear in punk, especially at this time, but it does a ton, and I really dig that. Uh, Protex Blue is after that. That one's solid. It's got a great opening. I love the guitar riff, and I love that you can hear some more of that Ramones influence there without them, like, just copying the Ramones. Like, you can tell they appreciate and have a lot of admiration for the New York punk sound that was happening, but they're still doing their own thing. And the following song really proves that. Uh, Police and Thieves is what it's called. It's really good. I love the opening. I love the the driving drums throughout with very, you know, they've got simple guitars kind of surrounding it. It's a lot more conceptual of a song than the rest of the tracks, and it's definitely the longest at over six minutes. The best part of it, in my opinion, is this little buildup that happens at around four minutes in. Um, it does drag a little bit up to that point because of some of the repetition of the track, but it is still super worth it for the payoff there at the end. I really love that. Um, 48 Hours is a great follow-up to that. It's got much more um, up-tempo instrumentation. It's a lot more in-your-face. After that is Garage Land, which wasn't really my favorite, but I do like the harmonica. There's a harmonica on this track, and I really like the opener, um, the intro for that song. My favorite tracks on the record, I know that was a lot of talking, um, were definitely I'm So Bored With The USA, I Love White Riot, I Love Deny, Cheat, and Protex Blue. It's hard to say I disliked any of the songs, but my least favorite was probably either What's My Name or Garage Land. But again, I, I liked all of them. Overall, I think it's a great record that I seriously enjoyed. It made me like The Clash even more than I did before. Uh, so let's get into some background of the record before we rate it. So The Clash is the self-titled debut from the English punk band The Clash, and they were formed in 1976 in London. And they were a major player in that British realm of punk rock following the birth of the genre in New York of the early and mid-70s, like I mentioned earlier. The record itself was released in April of 1977 by CBS, and it was written and recorded over the course of three weekend sessions, only two months prior, on a budget of £4,000. And by the end of the third weekend, the whole record was complete, mixed, and delivered to CBS. Like, The Clash had a vision, they went in and worked their asses off, they did it, and they did it really well. Super cool of them. Uh, The members of The Clash were Joe Strummer on rhythm, guitar, and vocals, there was Paul Simonon on bass, Terry Chimes on the drums, Mick Jones on co-lead vocals and lead guitar. All of the songs except for Police and Thieves which is actually a cover of a reggae song by Junior Mervin, were written by Mick and Joe. The Clash didn't make its way to the U.S. until 1979, which actually made it the second Clash album released in the U.S. after the follow-up, Give Him Enough Rope. Uh, The U.S. release was also heavily changed, with the track order switched around, and some of the songs were swapped out for ones that hadn't been featured on the record before. So the U.S. got a totally different version of the record than the U.K. did. Most of the tracks on this album were written in Mick Jones' grandmother's high-rise apartment on London's Harrow Road. And Mick's grandma was a huge fan of the group, and she went to as many of their live shows as she could. She's a badass grandma. The songs take their ideas from a wide variety of topics, like Janie Jones, which is about a famous London brothel madam of the same name. Remote controls about the bureaucrats and police who would shut down punk shows for no reason at the time, including a class show. Uh, Protex Blue is actually about a type of condom that Mick Jones would see in bathroom vending machines. (laughs) Garage Land is about a nasty review that The Clash received from a critic, saying, quote, The Clash are the kind of garage band who should be returned, 
to the garage immediately, preferably with the engine running. I don't know why you would say that about anybody. <laughs> um, finally, White Riot is about class and race economics, which was also The Clash's debut single. So I really like that. Um, critical and commercial reception was absolutely stellar. With every review I could find awarding 5 out of 5s and 10 out of 10s, I couldn't see anything that was lower than perfect. The record itself peaked at number 12 on the UK album charts and at 126 in the US, which is actually impressive given that the record was already two years old and had a different track listing by the time it made its way to the US. Since its release, it has been certified gold in the UK, selling 100,000 copies, and gold in the US, selling 500,000. I actually didn't realize that you only need to sell 100,000 copies in the UK to be gold because the US's RIAA requires 500k for the same status. I guess it makes sense because there's a lot fewer English people than there are Americans. Um, my final thoughts on the record, uh, I personally feel like this album totally stands on its own. It's super varied, it's fun, it's unexpectedly complex, and its historical impact is just totally immeasurable. Um, it's such a solid record, so indicative and forward-thinking of what the punk genre could be, and it outshines the majority of what was coming out at the time, in my opinion. I think it is a fantastic album. I'm going to go with a 9 out of 10. It's just solid. It's just totally solid. If you're interested in punk at all or what was going on, if you're a Clash fan and maybe you haven't heard this one, maybe you've heard their other stuff, this is absolutely a record worth listening to. I loved it. So let's move on. Because on Tuesday, I listened to the Beastie Boys' Ill Communication from 1994. I never really got into the Beastie Boys because I didn't really know many people who listened to them. Um, when I did hear songs from them like What You Want and um, Sabotage, I was honestly a bit turned off to them. I just don't love that fuzzed out vocal thing that they do on a lot of their tracks. It sounds like they're talking like, back through the palms of their hands, and I just, I don't like it. I don't like it. Maybe you didn't even know what I said. I said through the palms of their hands, but that's how it sounds. It sounds like they're just not even using a, a regular microphone. It sounds broken and just kind of icky. And I think, especially with hip hop, you want to be able to hear what they're saying. It's a lyrical medium of music. And I just don't like that they never really produce their vocals in a way that you can hear what the hell they're saying. Um, maybe that seems nitpicky. Not being able to hear what the vocals are saying just really bugs me. It, it honestly does. Um, for instance, like my favorite rappers are like Andre 3000 and Rakim and, you know, Q-Tip. I, I love those guys because their lyricism is top notch and their delivery and their flows and all that stuff is it's beautiful. And the Beastie Boys just don't scratch that itch for me, honestly. Um, so because I couldn't really hear any of the stuff that the Beastie Boys were saying because of the vocal processing. I read through a lot of their lyrics to better understand what the songs were about since I couldn't tell just by hearing them, and it let me down even more. The lyrics are really good, and they cover a wide range of topics. I just wish that they would change their approach on that a little bit. It's hindsight. I get that. I know I have you know a certain fondness for a, a different style of hip-hop, honestly, but you know, either way, I did really like this record. That's honestly my only gripe with it, is the fuzzed out vocals, and it honestly didn't take away too much from my experience listening. So, let's get into my notes, because it's going to be long. <laughs> it's a long fucking album. Ill Communication is 20 tracks and 59 minutes long. It is incredibly varied, 
It is diverse, and it's interesting start to finish, even with it being so long. The album opens with the song Sure Shot, which has a great sample and a great beat. It's got some fantastic bass on there. And it is a typical Beastie Boys hip-hop song where all three members are able to showcase their lyricism and their interplay with each other as a group. I love that. I love the production of the track. I love the sample. I love the performances. It's a great opener. I couldn't ask for any better on that. Tough Guy is after that, which is a totally different direction. It's a punk track with great instrumentation. It's the most classic, quintessential punk kick and snare pattern that I was saying earlier. It's that boom ka boom ka boom ka boom ka And I love that. It's got these big distorted guitars. The group vocals translate super well to punk, like that hip-hop style where it's kind of fuzzed out and, you know, they're all singing. It's very Ramones, and I really like that. After that comes B-Boys making with the Freak Freak. <laughs> um, and that's where the vocals get noticeably more fuzzy, especially compared to the last two tracks. It's pretty hard to hear with everything around it as well. Like the the track has got a lot going on and so it's difficult to hear the vocals already. And with everything in the track, it makes it even harder. That being said, there is a really good boom bap beat in there that oozes with that classic 90s New York hip hop sound. It's got multiple different samples throughout that keep things interesting and varied. And there's a little interlude sample of someone saying, I'm going to stick my dick in the mashed potatoes. And that made me laugh so hard. I loved that bit. Overall, the song sounds like a bad trip, but in a really cool way. I really like that. Bobo on the Corner is after that, and I love the opening bit with that strong rhythm. That really caught my ears. And alongside that is this sweet bass line with these wad-out guitars kind of doing that funky thing. Um, you know, the wick 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 I love that. <laughs> That's a horrible representation of it, but I love that. Um, it feels like a heist movie. And there's no vocals going on, but it does so much during. It's just, it's completely instrumental. It's a funky interlude that sticks out so well. I really, really dig that. Um, Root Down is more hip-hop that has some great bass and drums. The production of the vocals is better here. It's much more intelligible. It's got a very cool rhythm, and I love the instruments that are used. Sabotage is the big hit off this record. Everybody knows it. I gotta say, I liked it more this time around than I ever have before. The production is so much clearer with all the instruments and all the vocals on this one than anything on the rest of the record. There's no vinyl crackle. There's none of that. I, I don't know what that was. It just sounds very clean. So I'm not sure if this was like a production choice or the remaster engineers put like more time into it. But either way, it's a really cool track. It's it's just super clean, super well produced. It sounds awesome. Get It Together is probably my favorite on the whole album. It features Q-Tip, so I'm a little biased. But I love, I love that the Beastie Boys gave him so much to do throughout it. Like a lot of the time you hear features and it's just someone you know, saying the hook, and you're like, oh, that's somebody I know, and then they never appear again. Q-Tip, like, carries this song on his back, and he does it in a really cool way, and the Beastie Boys just kind of let him, you know, do his thing, and they go back and forth with him on the verses. It's just so good. There's some great bass playing in there. There's some great music behind it all. I love the DJ scratches. It's just solid, top to bottom. If anything, listen to this track on the album. It's it's by far my absolute favorite. Um, Sabrosa is after it's a super funky one with no vocals more instrumental tracks um, it's got some Latin flair this time with these percussion elements there's an upright bass in there that does a lot for the track and at this point the album felt a lot less like a Beastie Boys effort and more like an exploration of New York music in general and having that mindset made me love it even more I really liked it at that point um the Update is another hip-hop track afterward with more great percussion and drums. I dig the opener with some of those 808s peppered in there. 
the vocals are fuzzed out again, so it's kind of hard to tell what's going on. But it is a great verse if you go and read the lyrics. It talks about war and pollution and oil drilling and just the state of the world in general. It's great and haunting. The instrumentation especially gives these thick and dissonant organ stabs that are just really, really effective. The problem is that you can't tell what he's talking about. And that's kind of a bummer. It's kind of a bummer. I know it's my it's my one gripe with it, but the, the tracks are really good. Um, Futterman's Rule has some of that same vibe. It's more Rage Against the Machine infused, and there's some really cool choices that are made because of that. It's darker than the rest of the tracks, like the update, and it has some funk rock fusion going on that I really dig. Um, All Right Here This has a cool little skit sample at the beginning about record scratching. Then the rhythm and bass come in that fuel the track. But again, the vocals are even more fuzzy than before, so it kind of put me off a bit. Um, Eugene's Lament is a really cool and otherworldly track with these sort of haunting and dissonant strings. It's unsettling but really interesting throughout. There's plucked string elements happening after that are really cool and kind of avant-garde in their presentation. It's a really weird track, but it's honestly pretty amazing that it appears on this album and works with the rest of the tracks at the same time. It's kind of a marvel. Um, Flute Loop has some great samples and drum sounds. I like the breakbeat bit. Um, There's more fuzzy vocals there. Um, Wasn't super into that, though. Do It Follows, which features Bismarcky, but he's barely present in it, unlike Q-Tip. That was a bummer. Um, But I have had one line stuck in my head. Someone says, I'm a 6.7 on the Richter scale, and I love that. I've been repeating it all through my apartment every day. Probably a thousand times it's been said in our apartment, and it's driving my fiance insane. Um, Ricky's theme opens super strong. I love the keys and the bass and the drums. It's really jazzy. It's just an instrumental track. I dig that a ton. Um, Heart Attack Man is great. I love that goofy bit at the beginning where you can hear the Beastie Boys making jokes and being dumb while they're playing on an acoustic guitar. And the rest of the track is another solid punk effort. It reminds me of like Black Flag. Um, especially when the guitars ring out and the song slows down. Like, Henry Rollins could have sung this, and it would convince me as being a Black Flag song. It's really cool, though. The scoop is sweet. The beat is weird. There's some strange spring reverb and delay going on, and it's one of the weirdest tracks on the record because of some of the production choices. I'm really into the change on the second half, where you get this new drum beat and a new bass line, and then it goes back to the original. There's some really nice variation that I liked. Um, Shambhala is awesome it's got a wild opening with some throat singing that I really liked and it stays there through the whole track as part of kind of uh, the sample I love the instrumentation it's kind of psychedelic and there's some really cool shit going on as you listen the best part is when the instruments kind of fade out but then the throat singing stays there and then the bit at the end with that singing turns into the sample for the next track which is uh, Bodhisattva Vow that's a great track that's a great track. It's one of the best hip-hop ones on the whole album. The drums are great. The sample's fantastic and new. Even now, it's it's like fresh to this day. I just wish the vocals were a little cleaner because it would be a totally perfect song, in my opinion, if they were. It's still fantastic, though. Transitions is the last track. It's a great instrumental one that is honestly beautiful. All the playing is well done, and it just works perfectly. Favorite tracks are Sure Shot, Tough Guy, um, Sabotage, Get It Together, Sabrosa, The Update. So I don't like B-Boys making with the Freak Freak. I don't love Flute Loop, and I don't love Fardeman's Rule. So let's get into some trivia before I rate it. I know that was lengthy. It's just 
I had a lot of notes on this because of how varied and strange and cool the whole effort is. So Ill Communication is the fourth album from the Beastie Boys, who are composed of Mike D on the drums, MCA on bass, Ad-Rock on guitar, and everyone on vocals. Ill Communication is the most eclectic release from the group, with influences from punk to jazz, funk, and hip-hop that are heard throughout. With this release, Beastie Boys sought to get away from relying on samples for the beats and wanted to focus more on the instrumental ability as well as enlisting uh, Money Mark, who was on the keys, Eric Bobo on percussion, and Awol Smith on the drums. And all three of them were actually considered to be a part of the band throughout most of the 90s. Ill Communication was promoted with the lead single Sabotage, which had a music video directed by Spike Jones of all people. And it was originally tracked at Tin Pan Alley Studios in New York and was originally called Chris Rock. It was unused for nearly a year due to not having vocals written for it, but when Ad Rock confronted a paparazzi at a funeral for his longtime friend, River Phoenix, he went to one of their producers and rapped out his anger to an 8-track tape and then mixed the result with the unused instrumental. I love that story. It's sad, it bums me out, but I love that it came from such an emotional place. I think that's really, really cool. The album cover features the art of photographer Bruce Davidson, who had taken photos in 1964 at an L.A. drive-in called Tiny Nailers for Esquire. And the photos went unpublished in the magazine, so when the Beastie Boys sent him their demo tape asking permission to use the picture, he recounted that he did not understand their music at all, but it sounded like a secret language that they had with each other, so he let them use the photo. I think that's really cool. I like that, you know, he, he gave it credit even though he didn't understand it. I know that's a lot harder for most people. Um, critical and commercial reception was super favorable, mostly 8 out of 10s and above, and the record peaked at number 1 on the U.S. Billboard charts. It is certified three times platinum by the RIAA, having sold over 3 million copies. So overall, I really like the songs and the concepts on this album. My experience was slightly bogged down by some of the production choices around the vocal processing especially. I just, again, I wish I could hear the vocals better because the lyrics are so well written for the most part. I really like what the group is saying. I think the album could have done more with the Bismarcky feature, but that's not a big deal. Um, it could have trimmed some of the fat overall, but, you know, what can you do? So my final thoughts overall, I really like the songs and the concepts on this album. My experience was slightly bogged down by some of the production choices around that vocal processing, like I mentioned. I just wish I could hear them better. Um, the lyrics are really well written for the most part, and I wish I wish they would showcase that a little bit more. I think the album could have done more with the Biz Marquee feature and maybe trimmed a little bit of the fat overall. So with all that considered and how much I enjoyed the record, I'll put it at an 8.5 out of 10. I really liked it, honestly. I can't say the same thing about the record I listened to on Wednesday, which is Jurassic 5's Power in Numbers from 2002. Obviously, I'm into hip-hop. Like, by the time I was 15 and 16, I was diving headfirst into the golden era of the genre, exploring groups and artists like Rakim, A Tribe Called Quest, NWA, Nas, all that. I know a little bit of Jurassic 5, but not enough to make me invested in the group. So I was a little hesitant going into this one, seeing that the record was nearly an hour long, the same way as Ill Communication, but I was hopeful that the record would do enough different to keep me interested like that album did. My thoughts on this may not do me any favors, so let's get it over with and just jump into notes. Power in Numbers is 17 songs and 56 minutes long. The album opens with This Is, which is just an instrumental intro track. After that is Freedom. I really like that one. Uh, the sample is great alongside the beat. There's some great verses and lyrical interplay between the members, and the hook is just as good. Um, this is and Freedom both start the album really strong. 
Next is If You Only Knew, and that one's got some more great wordplay. It's got a nice jazzy beat. The flute samples are nice. It's got a good hook and solid verses like before. The break switches things up a bit with some great boom bap drums that caught my ear instantly. It does that really great thing with the first verse where the kick and snare pattern match the lyrical rhythm, which is super cool. That like kind of blew my mind a little bit. It's got some great hooks on there. None of the lyrics fall short. Everything is done really well here. The next real song is A Day at the Races, which has a solid beat, some cool samples, and some more interesting sounds going on. There's even a motorcycle sample in there that lends some variety and some weirdness that I wish they would lean a little bit more into. Everyone flows much faster on this track, and all the verses are really good. There's some solid production. There's a sweet verse from Big Daddy Kane, who I love. I loved Big Daddy Kane's verse. Um, Remember His Name has a cool skit at the beginning. There's some cool samples going on. There's a really great back and forth thing over what's supposed to sound like a phone call. And I loved that bit. I love how, you know, you can hear one person talking clearly and then you hear one person through a phone. There's some cool sound effects of cars skidding and gunshots and uh, cash registers opening. All that stuff was really interesting. What's Golden has some cool samples itself. There's some good organ sounds and some fuzzy bass. There's some good verses, a solid hook. I really dig that verbal Herman Munster line. That's been stuck in my head a lot. Thin Line has a good beat. Um, It talks about loving a woman that you're good friends with, but it's pretty pretty corny. It's pretty corny. I appreciate the theme, but it was a little too much for me in some of the lines. Um, There is a Nelly Furtado feature that's really good, either when she's singing or when she raps a bit. I thought that was really cool. But this is sort of when the album began to lose my interest. Because Ill Communication has some great variety and some interesting and unconventional choices, and that's what makes the length of it worth it, in a sense. The lack of those elements on power and numbers really, really make it start to drag about halfway through. There's just not enough change to keep me interested. I have ADHD, and so at this point I was just like, okay, I get it. Let's go. Let's do something new. Um, Especially with how long it is, you know? After School Special is a really cool song. I like the adorable kid at the beginning talking about the album, and the beat itself has some good samples, some of my favorites so far. There's some really nice separation between the verses and the hooks because of those samples. Um, The little kid returns to rap a tiny amount at the very end, and I really dug that. High Fidelity has a funkier beat. I like each choice that they make with the samples. There's some really good ideas in there. Some of Us is more of the same. It's got good verses, beat, hook, and flows. One of them is next. It's got a darker beat, but it's more of the same. Um, Hey has differences that make it a bit more interesting. The beat and the instrumentation are solid. I like the singing and the verses. Um, I Am Somebody has a more funky beat. There's a nice group vocal intro. The hook is one of the best so far. And I really like that bit at the end with the call and response sample. It sounds like a congregation of some kind. Um, Someone says, who are you? And the crowd shouts, somebody. And it's, it's really cool. Acetate Profits is the closer. It's a great instrumental track. There's lots of interesting sample flips that show you how good the production is in this group. And that's what bums me out. This track has so much variation and freshness and artistic choice that are weird and conventional, but there's very little of that that is present on the rest of the tracks. I appreciate the message of the album, right? Hip-hop has the ability to really speak to me, but this album just feels so safe in its approach. And it was near the end of that golden era of hip-hop. And Jurassic 5's contemporaries or competitors were groups like Outkast. And when that's your competition, you have got to do more than this to stand out. And it doesn't. 
And ironically, after the track finished, Spotify went into autoplay and the song Show Business by A Tribe Called Quest came on, which has all of those things that these tracks don't. I still think it's a pretty okay rap album, but it just doesn't do enough to bring it to great status for me. My highlights of the album are the tracks that break up the monotony, in my opinion. I Dig Freedom, Break, A Day at the Races, Remember His Name, After School Special, and Hey. My least favorites are Some of Us and Thin Line. I just, it, it didn't stick with me. A lot of them kind of blend there at the end, and, you know, it is what it is. There's hardly any trivia for this one. I couldn't find anything. I ended up watching this little documentary that was tied to, like, a DVD release of the album, and it doesn't really do anything. It's more just, like, behind-the-scenes stuff and, like, what they do before shows, and I thought that was interesting, but it didn't give me any info. Um, so a lot of this is just from articles. Power Numbers is the third record from Jurassic 5. Their last record, Quality Control, ends on the same double bass sample that this album starts on, which I think is really cool. Kind of ties them together. Jurassic 5 is made up of the rappers Charlie Tuna, Akil, Zakir, and Mark Seven, and the DJs Cut Chemist and DJ New Mark. Jurassic 5 are truly underground. They stuck to their values despite any level of acclaim or fame that they ever received. And their releases did taper off in commercial reception since the debut, and they actually disbanded in 2007, but have since formed again recently and are putting out a few new tracks. Um, there isn't a ton of information about the production on this album that I could find, so I guess this is just going to be pretty quick here. Um, like I mentioned, I did watch a bit of that movie, and it made me like the people behind Jurassic 5 a ton. They're all clearly humble and down-to-earth guys that have a very powerful love for hip-hop, and I, I respect that endlessly. The record peaked at number 15 on the Billboard charts and has mostly positive reviews, ranging from about 7 out of 10 and above. The album did not receive any certifications from the RIAA, but it did sell 387,000 copies from what I could find. My final thoughts, I'd probably put this in the same range as those other reviews, around a 7 to a 7.5. It just doesn't do enough for me. Um... Not enough that's new, especially at this era in hip-hop. You know, there's so much opportunity, so many studio tricks, so many people out there that are doing interesting things, and it just felt very safe. Hip-hop is such a varied and amazing genre that pushing those boundaries is practically a part of the style at this point. It's practically a part of the genre. So I'm sorry if you're a fan of this album. I'm just not. Um, I think Jurassic 5 are still a fantastic and insanely talented and passionate group. This release in particular just kind of fell sharp for me. Not as short as this next one. <laughs> On Thursday, I listened to the Afghan Wiggs's Gentleman from 1993. I've mentioned it before, but I have a pretty significant soft spot for grunge. That being said, I never explored the depths of the genre because I was only really into it as a kid. The Afghan Wigs are one of those bands that obviously never reached the status of, say, the Smashing Pumpkins or Nirvana, so I never really got into them. And since I didn't know anything about them, I walked into this pretty much entirely blind. And I have some thoughts. This album is dad rock. It's one of the most dad rock albums I've heard in a long time. And I honestly don't think it aged well at all because of one key thing, and that is the vocals. I think the music is solid. I think the performances are great. The guitarists, the bassist, and the drummer, they all know what they're doing, and they make that very obvious. The vocals which come courtesy of Greg Dooley, just do not do anything for me. I don't think you need a good singer to be a good band. There are plenty of groups that I am hugely fond of that don't have what you would consider a technically good or talented vocalist. 
But when that is the case, those vocalists know their limits and they stay within a certain bounds. Think about that. Most punk groups don't have technically good singers. We saw an example of that in The Clash this week. Joe Strummer is a good singer, but he's not belting like Adele, right? But their music works because it fits the style of the voice. And the same can be said about Nirvana, right? Kurt Cobain was not a technically talented singer, but his voice works super well. Greg Dooley's voice, for me, does not work at all. So let's get into my notes from listening. This album opens with the song If I Were Going, which is a decent opening track. It's got some interesting guitar parts, but it doesn't really do much. I'm not a huge fan of it right off the bat, but I do like how the other instruments fade out except for the drums, and then that drum beat transitions into the next song. Uh, Gentleman is next, which has some great drumming and some cool guitar parts, and that was when I was turned off to Greg Dilley's voice. The lyrics were just so corny, and so were some of the production choices, but I think the bridge part is a redeeming factor. Next is the song Be Sweet, which I hate. I get what the album is going for, in that the lyrics are supposed to be self-deprecating, but oh my god, it's corny. The verse is as follows. Ladies, let me tell you about myself. I got a dick for a brain, and my brain is going to sell my ass to you. If I'm okay, but in time I find I'm stuck, and she wants to love, and I still want to fuck. Now that I'm ashamed, it burns, but the weight is off. Now that you're out of the way, I turn and I can walk. You showed no sympathy, my love, and this was no place for you and me to walk alone. The vocal melody that sings those lyrics is also so bad. I don't dig that melody. I don't dig the performance. I don't dig the lyrics. It's not my thing at all. At all. At all. Debonair is next, and I dig the opening bit because it reminds me of The Cure. I think the instrumentation is good. I like that messy, kind of droning guitar on the verses. Um, the song When We Two Parted follows, and that instrumentation is good again. I do not like the harmonies at all. The angst at this point is so palpable that it's just cringy. There are better ways to convey self-reflection and loathing. So many better ways. Think King Cruel, another not technically talented singer, but fantastic composer, instrumentalist, producer, writer, whatever. He does a great way of talking about that introspection. Fountain and Fairfax is pretty rough. The instrumentation is not good on this one. There is a beautiful part about halfway through with some swelling strings that caught my ears, but it was not enough to keep me into it. The song What Jail Is Like is garbage. It's one of the more corny tracks. It sounds like it could be easily recreated better in GarageBand. I know that's not fair. This was the 90s, but it sounds like shit. Production really lacks on this one, and at this point, it feels like the album thinks it's far more profound than it actually is. And Greg talks about all the sex that he definitely has, and that chorus is just god-awful. The song My Curse is really bad, too. I think it has a great premise. This one is sung by Marcy Mays of Scrawl, and it counters that male protagonist from the rest of the album by giving a different perspective on domestic abuse and toxic relationships. I just don't dig the vocal performance. I'm sorry, Marcy. I'm not trying to drag you into this. It's just not my thing. The lyrics themselves are really heavy-handed, but I will excuse that in this case. I think the performance just doesn't quite hit what it needs to. Um, the song Now You Know is much better. I think the song is better structured and produced. The vocal performance is better at this point, which I like. The track I Keep Coming Back follows, which has some cool rhythm going on. I like the droning organ. It's got a cool opening, but the pre-chorus vocals are rough. Rough is what I'll say. The notes being sung are just not hitting the mark 
at all, not even coming near. The song Brother Woodrow is the final track and is the best of it all, mostly because it's entirely instrumental. <laughs> the guitar tones are great, the performances are tight alongside the really solid production, and it shows how well the album is produced and how well the songs are composed or could be composed. I did not enjoy this. I think the lyrics are ham-fisted. I think they tried to take an interesting approach, and they failed for their lack of subtlety. The presentation is so corny and so cliche that it just becomes cringe, like I said. I think this album was and is so celebrated by critics and fans because it did things different from its contemporaries at the time. You know, while everyone was chasing that grunge sound of Nirvana and Pearl Jam in particular, this album takes a much different approach in nearly every way, from the music to the production, the songwriting, the style, and the themes. I just think that people were glad to have something different, and that's the problem. Because, say it with me, different doesn't equal good. Not automatically. Weird doesn't equal good. We gotta get past that. We gotta get past that. Experimental music is good when it works, when it does something interesting, right? Different and unique and weirdness works when it does something interesting. This doesn't do anything interesting for me. The tracks I did like were Brother Woodrow, Now You Know, and I guess Debonair. Um, I do not like What Jail Is Like, Fountain Fairfax, When We Two Parted, Be Sweet, or My Curse. So before I rate it, let's do some trivia. There's not a ton again, so we can get through this pretty quick. Gentlemen is the fourth studio album from the Afghan Wigs, who at the time were made up of Greg Dooley on vocals and rhythm guitar, Rick McCollum on lead guitar, John Curley on bass, Steve Earle on drums, and Harold Chichester on keys. The record was released by Elektra in America and Blast First in England. The whole effort was produced by Greg Dooley. Obviously, he is very talented. He's very talented. I don't want to... You know, shame him for anything. I just don't like his voice. That's not my thing. But as a producer, as a musician, as a writer, he does a pretty good job. You know, he's a good composer. The album cover features a photograph called Nan and Brian in bed that has these two little kids, a little boy and a little girl. They look like they had a one night stand. It's a really weird choice. I don't like it. And it made the singer uh, Linda Ronstadt very upset as well. I, I get it. It's kind of weird. You know, I, I don't want to be, you know, overly sensitive to anything, but it is, it, it's weird to look at. Critical reception was positive overall, ranging from four out of fives and above. It has no RIAA certification, so assume it didn't break 500,000. For me, this barely reaches above a six out of ten. I'm not into this. Sorry if you are. Okay. Let's talk about something a little bit more fun. That was a drum roll on my desk. Sorry if that bothered you. Um, on Friday, I listened to Boston's Boston from 1976. If you're talking dad rock, here's some fucking dad rock. <laughs> but it's fun dad rock. That's why I like it. This is another soft spot for me like Psychedelic was last week. I love this era of rock music. I think it's so fun. It is not everyone's cup of tea. I know some people don't like that cheesy, poppy sound overall, but I'm into it when it's done well, and Boston does it the best. So well. So let's jump into my notes. Boston is eight tracks and 37 minutes long, thank God. The album itself opens up with the track More Than a Feeling, which everyone has heard. It's an absolute classic and a near-perfect song. Right out of the gate, you notice that the album has these vocal performances in particular that hugely contrast the Afghan wigs. Brad Delp, the frontman, has an insane voice. 
This dude can belt with minimal effort, and that is evident throughout the whole record. I love his voice, not just because of the raw talent behind it, but his actual inflections and style are so interesting and cool. Everything on this track is spectacular. From the production to the performances to the composition and beyond, nobody can say that there isn't at least one element about this song that they don't like. It is such a good track. Peace of Mind is next and is also another solid song. The performances are all top-notch. The hook is one of the catchiest I've literally ever heard. It's got some absurd harmonies that are gorgeous. It's absurd. It sounds like humans aren't capable of singing that. It's like an entire choir and just a few people. I love that track. Foreplay and Long Time are great. Foreplay is the opener, and it's just an instrumental that sounds like a classical piece that is on coke. Um, it shows just how talented everyone involved is because all of their instrumentation is insane. Long Time is just another great track. The opening is kind of corny, but it's so captivating at the same time. It does this sort of build-up thing that lead to the claps and the acoustic guitars and the pre-chorus that is so well done. Ugh, it's so well put together. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Rock and Roll Band is one that I didn't really recognize, but I did love. The riff in this is so rock and roll. I just... I can't help but love it. There's some great performances here as always. There's a catchy ass hook. And it's one of the best guitar solos, which is saying something since literally every track has a guitar solo. I mean, literally every track. This is a really good one in particular. The track Smokin' is next, which has some more great riffs, some really cool blues progression things. And it's got a fantastic organ solo with some awesome little jam bits in there. It's just more great rock music. The next track, Hitch a Ride, breaks up any monotony that the album might have for some people. It's softer, it has some beautiful melodies, playing with the acoustic guitars. The bridge does a ton leading into that, of course, guitar solo that keeps me interested. And the solo is more restrained than the others, but still just as good. The absolute focal point of the whole track are those vocals, which are still amazing. Oh, it's such a pretty song. I really like this one too. Something About You has a solid opening. But it does have a riff that's a little too similar to more than a feeling, weirdly. I don't, it kind of threw me off. Um, that being said, I, I do love the rest of the track because it has more great harmony and melody in the chorus and one of the best choruses on the whole thing. It might be one of the prettiest parts on the whole album. The verses are kind of rehashes of what you have heard up to this point, though. The chorus has really saved the track, honestly. It is worth a listen. Let Me Take You Home Tonight is the closer. We really breezed on through that. Um, it's got some really cool variation to keep you interested after everything before it. I love the acoustic guitars here. I love that slide guitar that sounds so just classic. It just sounds great. Um, they do some really great and interesting stuff with the bridge. I like how the ending changes into something totally different from the rest of the track. It's just a really good closer overall. Um, my favorite tracks are Rock and Roll Band, Smokin', Hitch a Ride, Long Time, and Peace of Mind. Those will just never get old. I would say Something About You is the one I don't like due to it being so similar to the others, but the chorus makes it stand out so much and is something I enjoy a ton, so I won't say I dislike any of the tracks. I know this is a quick review, but honestly, the album is pretty cut and dry. It's very well put together. It's quintessential 70s rock. It kicks ass, but it's not like it's going to change your life, okay? It's very enjoyable and fun, and that's all the reason I need to like it. So let's get into trivia. Boston is a rock band from, of course, Boston and is really only made up of Tom Scholes and Brad Delp. 
Now, Scholz is pretty much the instrumental piece of the group, while Delp takes on vocal responsibility. Scholz also produces the material and plays guitars, both electric and acoustic, clavinet, organ, and bass on the album. After Boston was signed to Epic Records in 1975, they began working on their debut. Epic wanted them to record in a professional studio on the West Coast, but Scholz wanted to record in the comfort of his home studio in Boston, where they actually did the demos for the album that got them signed in the first place. They decided to enlist John Boylan in a scheme to convince the label that they were working with him while they stayed in Boston where they were comfortable. The songs were pretty much all re-recorded, as they were nearly all present on the demos and had been written and performed years prior. Now, the space where the record was recorded was called Foxglove Studios, and was basically just a tiny basement with a furnace inside. There wasn't even enough room to have both the Hammond organ and the drums set up, so whenever they wanted to record one, they had to tear down the other. <laughs> and Scholz would talk with Boylan to discuss how the project was coming along, and Boylan realized that Scholz didn't know how to properly record acoustic guitars, so he flew out Paul Grubb to show Scholz how to properly place mics for the acoustics. Boylan was also involved in the vocal recording and the mixing, as well as recording Let Me Take You Home Tonight as a decoy to appease Epic, and they did all of that on the West Coast in Los Angeles, I believe. Um, the entire record was essentially a copy of the demos, from the sound all the way down to the equipment used. The budget for the record was only a few thousand dollars, probably smallest of every record we've talked about today. Now, the record itself was released on August 25th of 1975, and most people in the industry thought that it was going to tank due to the popularity of disco at the time. It initially got popular in Cleveland, and within a week was playing across nearly 400 radio stations. And Scholz had reserved hope for the album, telling everyone that if it failed, he would abandon music and just continue working at the Polaroid company as he had been. And it wasn't until the record broke 200,000 copies sold that he actually felt any confidence in the record. And that was when he finally put in his two-week notice at Polaroid. And two months after its release, the album achieved gold status and then went to platinum just one month later. And by January, it surpassed two million sales. As for that critical and commercial reception, the album has widely popular reviews, the lowest being 8 out of 10s. It peaked at number 3 on the U.S. Billboard charts and has now been certified 17 times platinum in the U.S. That is over 17 million sales, making it, I think, the highest selling record we've covered so far. It's insane that they sold that many copies on such a shoestring budget. Just two guys working on something. It's so cool, and I love that they did that. You would think, honestly, at first glance, that Boston is this, like, boy band style, you know, thrown together commercial success group because of how good the songs are. But it's really just two guys who love doing what they do. And I have so much respect for it because of that. So my final thoughts, I would place this at a 9 out of 10. It is such a fun record. And it's been often imitated after its release, but never quite surpassed. Think of all the bands that you know that sound a lot like Boston, but don't have songs quite as good. Boston has such a fascinating homegrown history. Their talent is electrifying and captivating. It's just impossible to ignore and not have fun with. I love it. So outside of what I had to listen to this week was the fantastic, emotional, beautifully well done effort from Slow Pulp, which is called Movies, spelled M-O-V-E-Y-S. Now, I don't remember when I first heard this band, but I am so glad I did. I've been listening to this record since December, and I've had it on repeat this entire week. It just keeps growing on me more and more. It isn't perfect. Some of the tracks are a little rough around the edges, but the ones that I am into are absolutely fantastic. 
The production is tight. The performances all nail it. The songwriting is moving, and the lyricism is poetic. I watched a KEXP performance, of course, while I was writing out the outline for the Afghan wigs, and it made me love this album and band even more. They are without a doubt little indie darlings, and they do what they do exceptionally well. You've got to check out this band, and I think the best way to do so is that KEXP performance, so I'll link it in the description. The tracks are all varied and near perfectly crafted in their presentation. Each one has something new and interesting to offer, and I think the record is just barely a snowball on the tip top of the iceberg of what is to come from these guys. Slowpulp was a group formed in Wisconsin, now relocated to Chicago, and they're made up of Emily Massey on vocals, Alex Leeds on bass, Teddy Matthews on drums, and Henry Storer on the lead guitar. The three guys in the group started as childhood friends who decided to start a band, and then they recruited Emily to lead after their first EP. Movies is the debut record from the group and only their fourth release. It explores genres like grunge and alternative, dream pop and indie rock, and it does pretty much everything well. Movies explores themes of personal growth, introspection, and existential crisis. It is a testament of what is to come from the group, and I can't wait to see where their careers go. So that's all I have for this week. You can find all the links I mentioned in the descriptions of wherever this is posted, alongside my social media handles and the show's email. If you have an opinion you want to share, shoot me an email and do the same if you listen to that slow pulp record. Okay, tell me if you liked it or if you didn't like it. Tell me what sold it for you or what put you off and what you listen to normally. I'm just curious about that stuff. I find it interesting. And again, if you like the show, please subscribe, like, give a five-star rating, whatever. It helps me out. As always, thank you for listening. I hope I see you next week. We got some fun stuff to cover. Thanks. Thanks.